I, uh, we're rounding third on this uh, series called Everyday Theology. I hope, I hope you've enjoyed it. The whole point wasn't really to like rewrite, uh, like to come up with something deeply, wildly profound. It's really not some kind of, uh, a lot, there's not a, a ton of Greek and Hebrew associated with, with this, with this uh, message series. It's really about rethinking things that we always do in our everyday life and see, could Jesus possibly use these moments, things that we've talked about, like, like work and, and family and friends and even what we do here outside of the walls as the church? How do we reconnect all of life back to Jesus? I, I've told this story multiple times. I won't say it again, but I was kind of told at an early age, being raised in a very conservative uh, church and a very conservative family, these things are good and these things are bad. And so in my adult life, I even carried that with me. This is good. This is bad. This is my church life. This is my non-church life. And, and the whole idea of this series is to really realize that Christ came to redeem everything and that all of us, all, all of the things that make us us, the, the Sunday things and the Tuesday things and the Friday night things, all of those can be used to tell the story of Christ in our life. Amen? Amen. And so I wonder if we could take a, a step into the kinds of things that we all have an interesting relationship with. Uh, my friend Jason, uh, he said this morning uh, as we were talking through the service that this is probably going to be one of his favorite messages of all time because we're doing the theology of food. And some of us just have, we have, we have a love affair with food. I, I, we, all, we have an interesting relationship with food. All of us do. See, we all need it. Uh, some of us, we just, you know, it's like the bare necessities, just enough to stay alive. And some of us, uh, we, we, we like, we really love our food. Um, if you, my, my wife makes fun of me because uh, I don't have much of a sweet tooth really, but until about 3 a.m., um, she will wake up the next morning and uh, I will have gone through the cupboard and, um, and got, opened up some Pop-Tarts and, and it's 3 a.m. so I'm not really cleaning up after myself real well. And so she comes downstairs to Pop-Tart wrappers and sour candy wrappers on the counter and she says to herself, I, I think I'm literally married to a third grader. Um, this is, this is, this is her life. And we, but we all have an interesting relationship with food. We get cravings. We have these different things that we want at different times. I figured that a great way to start a message about food is maybe to show you some pictures of food. These are some of my favorite foods. I'm, I might just take unofficial polls as we go through this. Let's go through them together. Karen, what's the first one we got? So this right here is an essential. This is what I basically lived on until I was about 28. I had no palate whatsoever. Chicken tenders and fries. I, this, is, this was a steady diet of Dustin Burke right here. Chicken tenders and fries. What I like about chicken tenders and fries is that you can dip them in anything, and that completely changes the meal. Like one dipping sauce changes the experience. This is a brilliant option uh, for, for food this afternoon. If you're looking for uh, some ideas, go to the next one. Then we've got, I don't even know exactly what's going on here, but I want to shake their hand. They're making great decisions with their lives. This is an amazing demonstration of dessert. Like, I don't even know what kind of cone that is, but I will drive any distance to get 
to it. Uh, so that looks amazing. Anybody got a sweet tooth? How many, how many of you got sweet tooths in the room? Kind of a go-to. Okay. Yeah. I typically default to having more of a, a, a savory. I like savory foods again until about 3 a.m. And then I don't know what I'm out of body experience or something like that. But, but to go to the next one. So this is a more, uh, this is like, you know, more of a, a home cook. It looks like grilled fish. Um, the, a delicious looking salad with avocado and, and hard boiled eggs. Uh, got some asparagus and some red potatoes. I mean, this, this, is, this is a good looking meal. I think this, is, this demonstrates health. And so if this is the one that you like, I just want to say good on you. Kudos to you and your healthy decisions. But then let's keep going uh, because sometimes... I don't know. I want I, this is actually. I'm really curious. I need to know this. Um, it's it'll help me just kind of see. Am I, am I am I normal or or is this like a problem that I need to, t- to talk to my therapist about? I have these random. My wife and I we we agree with this. I think uh, I'm speaking for my wife. She's I should never. She said don't ever speak for me. But but so sometimes it's like what do you want for dinner? And we just have this craving to walk down the frozen food aisle and just see how many bad decisions that we can make. Like, what all can we make at 450 degrees in our oven at the same thing? Anybody love frozen food? Like, just the frozen food? So it's just me. Okay, wow, sweet. Um, then I'll, uh, I, I, you put me on blast, but let's keep going here. Then the other side is chicken wings. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, football season, let's go. I mean, that's, this, is, this is pretty epic. Um, any, what's, the, what's the wing place in town that you love? Wingstop, is that the move? Yeah, I, I was going to say, is, is Buffalo Wild Wings, is that like a thing? Where that, cause I know it's a chain, and I liked it back in Ohio, but, but that was always a going for me. Is, is there one that I don't know about that you're like, you got to go? Those are the two. Okay, good, because I'm a wing guy. Go to, go to the next one. Then you got back to the Sweet Tooth. Uh, let's just keep moving through these. Um, what, what do we got? Is that the last one? Is there anything else, Karen? Yeah. Yeah, so literally, literally, I crave pizza every day of my life. Uh, you know how sometimes I think, that I say that the whole Android and iPhone battle, um, that I, I, I believe that um, heaven has a special place for iPhone users um, and, uh, and Android users, uh, there's a special place as well. Um, but, uh, it's also in heaven. Um, but I, but I, I have a, a very, I have this very visceral reaction as well to people who would like any kind of vegetables on their pizza. Why would anybody ruin a perfectly good pizza by putting, you want a salad, get yourself a salad. But how many vegetables on pizza people do we have? Okay. Okay. Evan, Evan, yikes, dude. This is a combo. Okay, this became a mutiny. Like, and I just want to—I just want to point out. <laughs> Those are Android users who also like vegetables on their pizza. Okay, and I just want to—I just want to point out. This is just—this is not my message, but it's the message within my message. You've never been so vocal about any message I've ever preached in my entire life, but yet we start talking about food. And the reality of it is, we have a very interesting relationship with food. I, I was prepping this message real late on a Tuesday night. And so it was like 11 p.m. I was in the new office at the Converge Center. That's pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, yeah, we can celebrate that. That's awesome. And so I was really, and I, this happens to me a lot. I forgot to eat and I am I'm late in the day and I hadn't eaten. And I'm looking up these pictures on the internet 
and, and, and in my office, all of a sudden, my stomach starts growling, and I'm star- I realize I haven't eaten, and I'm starving to death. We actually have physiological responses to seeing food. This is interesting. Massachusetts Institute of Technology researchers have discovered a previously unknown part of the brain that lights up when we see food. There was, there was a cognitive light show going on in here, right? There was a, there was a strobe show of, of brains in this room when I showed those pictures because we have a physiological response to food. And then you add smelling food to the equation, and all of a sudden our, ma- our mouth starts to water. We actually begin to, to get the digestive juices flowing. Insulin begins to be produced to break down sugars. We all have uh, this thing in common that we all have a very interesting relationship with food. On average, we spend about four and a half years of our lives actually eating. Let me break it down like this. That's 39,000 hours over our lifetimes of forking and knifing and spooning and sipping and chewing and swallowing 39,000 hours. And the point of this series and the point of today is not to really try to rebuild the wheel of sorts. No, it's, it's to ask you if there's 39 on average, 39,000 hours that we spend eating, is there something that we can think, a filter that we can put on to say, Jesus, how could you use this time? How, I can't imagine, it's hard for me to imagine that, that, we, that, that we are designed in these ways that we share that in common and that is just wasted years of our life with no eternal purpose whatsoever. What, what, can we, what if we put a filter that maybe this Christ cares about this as well. And I'm not talking about the, the reach behind your desk and grab a cliff bar. Uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that every time you put something in your mouth that it needs to be some kind of spiritual experience. But, but I, I read this this week. Dr. Stuart Fairmont, he's a best-selling author and a food scientist, he says this in one of his books, the ritual of cooking and sharing is entrenched in our psyche. There's research which shows that regularly eating with others improves overall well-being. And he goes on to say, you'll live longer if you take the time to create food, cook food, and eat food with others. It's an interesting fact. It's an interesting discovery that, that science has proven, but it really shouldn't be surprising to us because we were designed with a need to eat, and we were also designed with a need to be together. Like when God created Adam shortly thereafter, he says, you need somebody to do life with. And so it shouldn't be surprising that we are at our best when we both do what we have to do to survive and what we get to do because we are together. That we are better and our well-being of our lives is more deeply established when we do those two things together. Food is mentioned throughout the entire Bible over 1,200 times from Genesis to Revelation. If God's going to say something and talk about something over 1,200 times, it stands to reason that there's something there for you and I. And it doesn't, we don't have to dig too deep to imagine the ways that God uses it. I just, 
didn't even crack a Bible. I just went from my own knowledge of Bible stories, some things I learned from flannel graph in Sunday school when I was a little kid and reminded my heart of the things, the ways that God used food and drink. I thought of manna for the people of Israel. You know, like, like manna was the, the people of Israel were wandering around and God said, I'm gonna, you're going to wake up every morning and I'm going to provide food just outside of your tent. And this is a demonstration, not just that you need to eat, but it's God's way of saying, I see you. I haven't forgotten you and I'm taking care of you. I wonder, this really isn't my message, but I, I couldn't help but think for myself, at least when I was putting this together, what if... What if I took the time to, when I have a meal to say this is more than just a meal. This, is, this meal that I'm taking is God saying to me and to you, I see you. I haven't forgotten you, and I'm, I'm taking care of you. you know, the, the idea of just simply saying grace might be a reflection of like this is a gift that comes from God. Because here's the crazy thing. We did a, Ed mentioned it. You know, we, did a, we fed the homeless on Wednesday and did a, a funeral service for them. And those moments just remind me of how, how easy it is for me to forget just how blessed that I really am. I, I might not be able to buy a whole bunch of meals, uh, but I could pretty much buy at least a meal at any restaurant in town. I might not be able to pay for all you guys, but, but I could pretty much, wherever you wanted to go out and eat, my wife and I could probably join you, and then we just can pay for this meal and and we don't really think that much about it. I wonder if even this afternoon, it's not really my message. I want to get into my message. But, but I wonder as the intro to the message, if we could even when we go out to eat or when we, when we get home, just as a, a way to start thinking through food, maybe take the time to go, what a blessing it is. This is a symbol that says God sees me, he knows me, and he's taking care of me. He did the same thing not only with manna, but water. Remember when water gushed from the rock miraculously? And God used water from a rock to show the people that what you need, I've not forgotten. I will give you what you need. And he uses food in our lives over and over and over again to remind us that he's not forgotten us. There's food and meal festivals all throughout the Old Testament. Like food is directly connected to us remembering something about God, something about his story, something about the, 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 the story of God in, in, in his people's life. Food is directly connected to those festivals. In fact, there are specific foods and even specific people that you eat those foods with that are connected to these festivals. God, God, had, God cared a lot. Have you ever looked over like the Levitical law and just seen how many times there's there's something about what we eat and when we eat and with whom we eat. God cared about the way we paired food with our lives. Remember Elijah's, the Elisha's uh, widow, the widow and Elisha and the, the oil? She said, I'm, Elisha said, can you just take care of the prophet? And the, the widow said, we we're, we're, don't have that much. If you remember, she said, we've got enough for one more meal. We were just planning to, to make this meal and what? And I, yeah. She, she had realized that without some intervention that, that she was going to die. She was, had run out of food, and her obedience and faithfulness to, to care for Elisha meant that God responded, and he cared for her, and her and her son ate meal after meal after meal after meal miraculously because God cares about saying to those that, are, that might, might otherwise forget, I see you, I remember you, I care for you, and I'm showing up for you. I like this one, Elijah. Not Elisha, but Elijah, the story of under a broom tree. 
He's, he accomplishes this incredible feat in ministry, and he's sitting under a broom tree, and he says, I want out. Ministry's too tough. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like, I don't like the, the people. I don't like the, the, the stress and the pressure. He says, I wish that I would just, I wish I didn't have to do this anymore so much so it'd be better off if I was dead. And I find it so interesting, and maybe you do too, that God didn't respond and say, Elijah, how dare you? I just called down, I gave you fire from heaven, and now uh, the very next chapter, you're like, forget it all, I want out of ministry, I quit. And instead of, of God responding how I might have and said, who do you think that you are? He, he did something miraculous for Elijah. What did he do? Made him a meal. He, an angel of the Lord shows up to Elijah sitting there under a broom tree wishing he was dead and and God shows up, and instead of chastising, and he makes him a meal. This hot plate forms on this stone, and water randomly shows up. And God says to Elijah, I see you. I haven't forgotten you. I want to I I meet you in this. God has always been about using food to remind us of his, of his promise and his presence in our life. It carries into the New Testament just very quickly. We can think of Jesus feeding the 4,000, the men, and then plus the women and children. And once in a later passage, he fed the 5,000 men plus the women and children. I don't know if they were like on the brink of death or if they were just hangry. But either way, Jesus decided that their, their meat, them having a meal was worth it. And it was recorded in the Gospels, I believe, as a way to say God sees us. He cares about us. We see when Jesus, I like this one, when Jesus turned water into wine. Remember that? And wine throughout the New Testament is, a, is symbolic of joy, of a glad heart. I thought of this one just because it reminds me that not only is God meeting our, our, requ- our minimum requirements to sustain us, but but how many of us know that there are times that we also are just so richly blessed to get the kinds of things that we don't necessarily like just need. We just, we, we just wanted them. And, and God, we find ourselves having the luxuries on the, the over and abundant of what we need. And many of us get to enjoy what just makes our heart glad. And Jesus cared enough to, to turn water into wine to keep the party going because he cares a lot about us having joyful hearts. And then finally, we know that Jesus ate a lot of meals with sinners. I like that one the best. And that's kind of where I want to park, because I'm thankful because if Jesus wouldn't be willing to eat with sinners, then I would never be able to have a meal with him. I would have never been able to break bread with Jesus if Jesus just saved his meal prep for those that were holy and those that were righteous and those that deserved it. I don't know about you, but for me, I would never have been able to eat with Jesus. But I want to see three lessons, just very briefly today, see if I can see three lessons from Jesus about food and what Jesus did. So we know that God cares about food. It's used 1,200 times. We know there's a connection between food when we eat with others. We know that food was used as a reminder to say that God cares about us and he sees us. And I do think that we should live grateful lives. And I don't always pray over every meal. I don't always say grace before I eat. I literally just decide that when God prompts me to, no matter who I'm eating with or what I'm doing, hey, can we pray real quick? But, but for me, the formula of saying grace before a meal stopped feeling like it was authentic and it kind of felt formulaic. So now I pray as I'm inclined to before a meal. But after doing this message, I find myself more inclined to because I see every meal like you see me, you, you care about me, and you're showing up for me. So the character of God was extended through the person of Jesus, and Jesus meets with some people. 
And he meets with some people to say, I see you, I care about you, and I've not forgotten you. I want to see if we can learn three lessons by how Jesus eats with people and see if maybe we can walk away, not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but maybe putting a filter on about food in our life. Three things, three lessons from Jesus about food with others. Number one, that a meal can cross divides. A meal can cross divides. There's gaps between us and people sometimes. And, and sometimes a simple meal together can be a great first step to cross some divides. We see this in Luke chapter 19. We'll read it together. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read seven verses. It goes like this. Jesus entered, what's that word? We just keep that word in mind. It's going to be not my message, but a message within the message. Jesus entered Jericho, and he made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. And I don't know. I might be the only one that knows it, but Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. For he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And I could do the motions for you if you wanted me to, but that's a children's church song. Uh, but what I didn't know from the children's church song that I learned is that he not only was a wee little man who wanted to see the Lord, he was a chief tax collector. It's one thing to be a tax collector. Being a tax collector would have in and of itself been bad enough. But this is the tax collector among tax collectors. This is the thief among the thieves. This is the chief of the tax collectors. Tax collectors, if you owed a hundred bucks, they'd say you owe me 400 bucks and they'd, they'd pay the hundred bucks and they'd give that to pay the taxes and then pocket the 300 bucks. These guys were making their money on the backs of simple people. They were really, they were really causing the people of God to be impoverished and they were gaining wealth. And so that's who this man is. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he, will you say those words? He called him by name. First off, first off, I want you to know that Jesus knows your name. He, he, he already knows you. Say, Zacchaeus never introduced himself. But there was a little bit of a desire to see Jesus. Zacchaeus wasn't sure if he was going to go all in. He wasn't exactly sure if he was going to really give his life to Jesus. But there was something there that was worth looking deeper into. And that might be you today. It might be you today. You're, you're not really sure that you're ready to necessarily go all in, but something brought you here. And I just wanted to let you know that he knows your name. Even before you introduce yourself to him, he sees you, he knows you, and he's not forgotten you. And sometimes he wants to have a meal with you so that you can really understand him more deeply. That's what it was with Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus, he said, I like this. This is so interesting. Like, like, Jesus, just the, the gall of Jesus. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. You're making me dinner. Quick, come down. I'm going to your house today. For, like, Jesus, are you, allowed, is, are you allowed to do that? Like, is, this, is, that, oh, is that socially acceptable? Well, I guess if you're Jesus, then it is. But it'd be like me just walking down the street, leaving the theater and walking down and saying, excuse me, sir, I'll take pepperoni on my pizza at your house 6 p.m. See you there. 
I mean, that's what Jesus did, but Jesus knew there was something stirring in the heart of Zacchaeus. And then look what happened. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down. He couldn't wait. It was going to be just a glimpse, but Jesus has other plans sometimes, don't he? It was just going to be a quick glance and, and just to really see the, Jesus and how he interacts and how the people interact with him. It was just a quick glance as he passed by, but Jesus is never going to be satisfied with a quick glance. A quick glance, a, a quick prayer, a quick pop by church is never going to be enough for Jesus. Jesus wants to know you. He wants to really spend time with you. And so he says, Zacchaeus, come down. And Zacchaeus couldn't wait to get down. So Zacchaeus climbs down and he, and he, he, he took Jesus to his house in great excitement and, and joy. And then verse 7, those dang church people. But the people were displeased. He has gone to eat at a notorious sinner's house, they grumbled. It's not, I don't even know if it's going to be helpful. I just didn't want you to miss it because maybe this will speak to you as you come in here. Remember, where's this taking place at? Remember? Jericho. Jericho. Yeah. What's, I don't know if you know the story about what makes Jericho unique and special. You, you know, the people of God walking around Jericho, they, God said, I'm going to give you this, this city. And the people of God are like, well, that's a fortified city. This is like a military city. We, there's no way we can take this city. And Jesus said, you can if I give it to you. And so they begin to walk around the city doing just like God said. And what happened to the walls of the city? Came crumbling down. Something that they could never accomplish on their own. God gave to them. God invited them into something that they not only didn't belong in, that they could have never gotten to on their own. And now they've spent some time there, and the religious people who are already guests in a town they don't belong in are now deciding who's in and who's out. I mean, isn't that just the way that it feels sometimes when it, we, we show up at church? I need to, to remind you that it ain't a single person in this room, it, 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 this is where you quote, and, and the family of God is not what you just deserve a place in. You were invited in by the person of Jesus Christ who did everything on behalf of your sin and my sin, and we did nothing but simply say thank you to the Jesus who was born, left heaven, he had it made in heaven, and he put on a suit made of skin and he lived a, a perfect, sinless life, and he went all the way to the cross. He was beaten, and he was tortured, and he hung on the cross, and then he, he died there on the cross, and they put him in a tomb, and then he rose victoriously. And all we did was say, thank you. So far be it for me or for you to decide who belongs at the table. Because we never did anything to be here in the first place. And Jesus is all about go, talking to the people who don't think they belong at the table and saying, can I, can I invite you to the table? Because Jesus cares about crossing these kinds of divides. And here's the cool thing. When Jesus, through the lens of a desire to do more than just eat, but to really get to the heart of what this individual really needs, when Jesus walks into a room for dinner, oh, Jesus has got more going on in his head and his heart than just hoping his belly's full. Because as we look in verse 8, meanwhile... Zacchaeus stood before, and I love that. Verse 7, you don't got to go to it, Karen, but I'll read verse 7. But the people were displeased. He has gone to eat at a notorious sinner's house, they grumbled. And then verse 8 starts with, meanwhile, as if the writer's going like, 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 while they're complaining, 
enter the scene of the house where Jesus is eating with this notorious sinner. And Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and he said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. In verse 9, Jesus responded. Will you read this with me? Salvation has come to this home today. Because when we eat with people, we have the opportunity to really cross some divides. And I wonder, I wonder, I'm not, I'm not asking for you to reinvent the wheel, but I am saying as you open the door for BJ's to have lunch with this person next to you, I, want, I wonder if you might, as you walk in, say, God, bring, bring salvation to our table today. God, as you drive to that person's house, you, you're meeting for a cocktail, you're meeting early in the morning for coffee, and instead of just getting there and letting it unfold, uh, that maybe we, you and I would put a filter on like Jesus did, and we just decide, as I go here today, if there's a way that I could close some gaps between them and their understanding of you, that maybe you could use me in this simple meal, this simple cup of coffee, this quick lunch, if you could use me to close the gap that maybe salvation could come to the table that I'll be seated at today. That's why Jesus did it. It was more than just having a meal. It was about saying, what can we accomplish when we have this meal together? Jesus cared about crossing divides. And it's Romans chapter 12. I don't want to read it for the sake of time, but in Romans chapter 12, there's this principle that I felt like it was worth reminding you of. Romans chapter 12, I think it's like verse 19 and 20, and it's, it's basically saying, don't try to get vengeance for yourself. Jesus is saying, I'll take care of getting the vengeance. And in verse 19 or 20, an interesting thing happens, and it says right after the verse about vengeance and about get, trying to get revenge the very next verse is, if your enemy, here's how the, the Romans chapter, is it, what, I think Romans chapter 12, here's how it says to close the gap between you and someone that you would consider an enemy. You can read it for yourself. Get, feed them. Literally, it says, if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then it says, in doing so, you will, you will heat burning coals on their head. You're like, well, that's, got, that's weird. It was weird for me, too, when I read it, and I, I did a lot of research on it. And actually, theologians kind of, they don't necessarily fully agree on exactly what is, what is being said there. But there is a sense that the heat transfers when we care for them and radically love them, and we care more about taking care of their needs than telling them how they, they are wrong. The things shift, and the heat begins to be on their head, and they begin to feel the reality of the gap. They see the reality of the gap. There's an Egyptian ritual that I believe that this is referring to, an Egyptian ritual where in, in Egypt, if you had wronged someone, it's an actual uh, ritual of reparation and repentance. You'd literally put uh, burning, hot, uh, burning hot coals in a basin and you carry it around and everyone can see. It's kind of like the sackcloth and ashes, if you remember that. Sometimes the rituals were about showing others what your journey was all about. And so if you were in a process of making a amends with someone, and an Egyptian ritual was that you would have burning hot coals on a basin, and it was as if they were saying, I'm making amends with somebody. And I don't know how it works, but Romans says that when we take care of our enemies' needs, that somehow repentance processes begin. By just simply caring more about them and their needs than what it is that caused the divide. Is there someone that you need to, need to shoot a text to later and say, can we grab lunch? And you don't have to speak to the divide. 
You don't have to go. Your agenda just can simply be, as, I, as you open the door to head into that Starbucks or into that restaurant, oh, God, that you would bring salvation to our table today and use this meal to do just that. That's how Jesus did it. And secondly, not only did, did, did Jesus, he knew that we can have a meal that can cross divides. He also knew that a meal can cultivate meaning, meaningful relationships. Moving through it pretty quickly, in, in Luke chapter 5, there's a man named Levi. I, I got the chance to sort of share this verse with the men at men's camp. And so it'll be review for some of those guys. But this was a powerful passage for me. I, I could pretty much preach these three verses all morning long, but I'll try not to. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 5, later, as Jesus left the town, here we see another tax collector, but this time Jesus' motive with this sinner is different. You see a, a, a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. I think it's important that, that the writer, that Luke left that because he's letting us know this ain't in his past. Some of y'all are like, I got, Dustin, I got a past. You don't even know. Well, well just as a way of setup, this guy's got a present. He's currently involved in the kinds of things that are disgusting to Jesus. And Jesus meets him there in his thing, which is really robbing his people. And he says this, follow me and be my disciple. Jesus said to him, Jesus is willing to, to speak not to what you're doing or what you've done, but to who you can become. Man, that was for somebody. That, there, even if it was a mumbled amen, I thought that might be worth amening. Jesus is speaking to you today, not about your worst that you're involved in or the worst that you're done, but the things he wants to accomplish in you and through you if you will just trust him with your life. Anybody, anybody know that to be true? I know I know that to be true. Say amen. amen. And here's what Luke does. And Luke does this. So Levi, Levi got up. He left everything, and he followed him. And later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. And many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. I just briefly, quickly. Anybody know who, who this man is, who he later becomes? The, the guy who wrote the first gospel, like the guy that, that we get the accounts of Jesus' birth and his life and his ministry. And we see the heart of you and I are like beneficiaries of knowing more about Jesus because Levi turned Matthew, got up from a tax collector's booth, and he said yes to Jesus. And now I get to know more about Jesus. I, I know more about my Savior because a tax collector got up and said yes to Jesus. And we read that the very first thing that they did was go have a meal together. The very first thing that Levi did with Jesus when, as he was on the journey journey of becoming Matthew was to have a meal. And I found it so interesting that, that Levi didn't have a worship band show up. He didn't preach a message. He invited all of his friends, likely none of which who were, were fans of Jesus. And all they did was host a meal and make sure his friends knew what mattered most to him. Didn't have to preach at him. Didn't have to hold a worship service. He he, in essence, just said, hey, guys, come on over. Let's have some food. And I don't know exactly how he did it, but I know that what I read that I want to kind of imprint into my life is that what Levi did was, hey, guys, come on over. And somehow Luke, the writer here, was able to say Luke just made sure that his friends knew that Jesus was the most important thing in his life. 
And, and, and by having a simple meal, Jesus was put on display as the guest of honor just by those around Levi knowing that, man, this, this guy matters a lot to me. The meals that we have, how can I do this? How, how do I? And I'm not, it, would be, it would be a religious exercise of me to give you all the things that you should or shouldn't do to make that happen. But when you have meals with friends, how can you and I be sure that they know who is most important in your life? And it doesn't have to be some big spiritual, you're not going to stand on the table and say, God in heaven. No, just, but, but how can, how can I live, how can I live what I see here in Levi? Jesus decided I'm going to call, this is the very first thing I'm going to do for an, a, a relationship that's going to change the course of history is have a meal together. And then Levi realized that while I'm here, is there any way at all that I can point my friends to know I just made a decision and this decision is about to change the course of my entire life. And Levi said, far be it from me to ignore that or to pretend like it's not important because it's really, really important. And I think I want to learn that lesson that I can sometimes have relationships like Jesus did that can cultivate relationships. And as I cultivate, as Jesus cultivated that relationship, it, it cultivated all kinds of relationships behind it. Who, who, who is there? Is there someone that a simple meal could start a relationship that could matter? Maybe it's someone, maybe it's like a, a before you leave here, hey, I could use somebody um, just, just to do life with. And I see a lot in your life that I respect and I admire. Can we grab lunch? Is there, could, we, could we get together I, I wanna, it, with, with the intent like Jesus did of cultivating a relationship? Not just crossing divides. That, that is one of them. But then there's other times that Jesus said, hey, we're getting together. And we're about to change the world. And is, is there a relationship that you could begin to reach out to? Because it's going to be something that's going to matter to you in your journey of faith. It's, this, it's a wild story, but I thought, I'd just, I thought I'd just give you some encouragement that don't underestimate it. I, I, was at a, I was at a bar. I was in Ohio, and I had just gotten hired on at CLC, and, and somebody in the band said, hey, let's go catch a band. Like in the worship band, they said, let's go to the, the bar was W.O. Rights. Let's go to W.O. Rights. And, and this, this guy who played in the worship band at church said, a friend's band is playing. And so we went to W.O. Rights and the band was there and there was not, his friend was fronting the band, but there was a guy in the back of the band, a young guy, and he was playing keyboards. And I'm not, I'm not making this up. My, you can ask my wife if I give anything in this story that is not true, but I, I'm, I'm illustrating for you, don't underestimate that the Spirit of God might say that relationship needs to matter to you. There is something in that person that I want to do something with. And so I'm at W.O. Wrights, and there's this guy in the very back playing keyboards, and I needed to hire a staff at Christian Life Center. And I'm at a bar with a friend, and the Holy Spirit says to me, reach out to that keyboard player and, and, and tell him you want him to be a part of what you're building at, the, at worship at Christian Life Center. And I'm, I had, I had my first beer and I'm like, what is in this? Because that's a dumb idea. That's a horrible, I don't, God, I don't even know if he sings. Much less does, does he even like you? And so the night went on and the Holy Spirit just kept saying, reach out to him. The dude never sang. All he did was play keys in the back, I mean, the very back corner of the stage and, and God wouldn't relent. So I hit him up on Facebook, weirdest message of my entire life. I asked my friend 
to get with his friend and to give me the name of the guy that played keys. And I found him on Facebook and I said, yo, this is about to be the weirdest message you've ever received in your entire life. But uh, I work at a church and I'm trying to build a worship team and, and I need worship leaders around me to really cultivate what I think God's doing in this place. I don't even know if you sing or like Jesus, but I, can, I, can I buy you lunch? I said, all I want to do is buy you lunch and, and we can chat about it. And um, he didn't respond. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And no one, everybody's like, well, duh, that's really creepy, Dustin. He didn't respond. And about, I, I went through a whole bunch of interviews at Christian Life Center, heart, interviewed a whole bunch of people, and God just wouldn't let me go. Something about joy. And, and I, I, you know, you can know the conversation in my head with God. God, I don't know if he's a singer. I don't even know if he likes you. And God just said, hit him up again. And I hit him up again. And, and this, this guy reaches back out and he says, you're not going to lie, it's pretty weird. Um, but I would love to grab lunch. And meet, we meet for lunch at a spot called O Charlie's just down the street from the church. And, and his name's Joey. And Joey had just graduated high school, actually, the, 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 uh, the May before. It's, it was August now. And had some stuff had happened in his family to where he was really disconnected from church, but had, a, had, like a, had grown up in the church. And, and Joey and I not only became friends that day, Joey was the first worship leader that I, I hired and literally became the, the, like, the partner that everything we accomplished together at the church was built on. I, Joey left working with me at Christian Life Center because he got a record deal with Sony, and he became a part of a Christian band that all, many of you guys would know exactly who it is. My wife would tell you, we, we joke about this often, that there's something about when I would hang out with Joey that like I was just extra lighter. Like I never laughed harder and just felt lighter as I was when I was with Joey. And I am convinced... And I'm convinced that that relationship and what we accomplished together continued to grow and continue to have God's favor because I was willing to go, okay, uh, can I buy your lunch? Jesus told me to. <laughs> and Joey lives in Nashville. He's come out here multiple times for storytellers events that we've done. I've gone and I've stayed with him. And it all started because I was obedient to see Jesus Go walks up to this tax collector's booth and says, can I buy your lunch? And the course of history was changed. Is there, is there, someone, is there someone that maybe you could reach out to? And, and there's a relationship or a friendship or a partnership that even as I'm talking, you're like, I've been wanting to grab lunch with that person. I've been wanting to grab a coffee. Can I just tell you that we see in the life of Jesus that those quick interactions can literally change the course of history it has in me. And lastly, we see in the life of Jesus lessons about food, a meal can cross divides, a meal can cultivate meaningful relationships, and finally, a meal can create the space for difficult conversations. I'm not going to read the passage, but one of the most famous meal in history, there's paintings about it, is the Last Supper. And it's, it's interesting that Jesus... When it came time to really share the climax of his life and to really just double down on the point of it all, that Jesus, he got a meal and he shared it with his friends. And we're going to do that together here in a moment. But I just wanted, I guess I just wanted to pivot just a little bit. Like, like 
You know, my last two application points have actually been kind of about, you know, is there a person, as you go, to, as you go into a restaurant, maybe salvation could come into that environment. And my second point was, is there a person that maybe God's going to do an incredible thing through a relationship, friendship, partnership that's going to start out of obedience to, for you to not just go grab a meal, but to really grab a meal through the lens of what are you doing in this friendship, partnership, relationship? But in, in this point, I don't so much want to say, is there a meal you need to go have a difficult conversation? around. I just want to point you to the conversation or, or, or the, the, the meal itself, because the meal itself is telling a story that I don't want for you and I to miss. Jesus is using food and, and a meal together to basically fix the thing that food broke in the first place. Like the very first thing that broke our relationship with God, like the thing that we chose over him, like, like all the stuff that he had given us and all of the beauty that he had afforded to us, like we, we decided that like this would be better. And we, we, Adam and Eve ate from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and this first thing that destroyed the relationship is interestingly and ironically enough something that we actually ate. And, and then some couple thousand years later, Jesus is eating with friends saying, what you destroyed, I'm putting back together. And he raises the glass and he raises the bread and he says, this is what I've done. What you used to rebel... I'm using to show my restoration, my reconciliation, and my healing. And it's hard for me to imagine doing a message about food without asking you about your relationship with it. And it's not just food. Let's talk about all the things that we put in our bodies. And I just want to ask you, is there something that you are involved in eating, drinking, taking in that you know has never been good for you. Well, there is the, the, the whole point of the, the Last Supper, what Jesus did, does there is to say that what we are destroying life with, he is trying to put it back together. And I just wanted to ask you, as, as someone who like I, I was just recently in November, I've shared bits and pieces, but just to give you a little bit without, without telling the, uh, the whole story that's my extended family's story to tell. Like Jess and I just last minute went to Ohio because, man, my, my dad, no one knew, but my dad went to rehab as an alcoholic, like cirrhosis of the liver. And my dad has stood vehemently against alcohol since the day that I was born. And he was secretly and quietly struggling with it to the point of just killing himself. And the crazy thing is that, that we, we have other secrets that we are secretly and quietly killing ourselves with. And I just wanted to give it a chance to pull it into the light and to say, Jesus wants to, to show you what, it is, what you're using to destroy your life. He's saying, I'm providing something to heal it. I'm providing something to restore it. And and I wonder, is there something that maybe, maybe it's a, a lifestyle that's killing you and, and you're going to miss moments with your kids and grandkids because you just won't, won't, won't treat food respectfully. And maybe it's alcohol. Look, it's one of the most dangerous things that we have. We have I believe we have liberty in it through Jesus. Oh, but we better be very careful. Not all things we have liberty in are very helpful for us. And I wonder if there's some things, as I was praying about, God, how can I just maybe put a, 
wrap this up quickly. And the Holy Spirit met me and said, if there's anything that you are doing, ingesting, taking, drinking, and there's any measure of doing it secretly, there's a really good chance God's trying to, he wants to heal that. He wants to restore that. He wants to redeem that. And he does that by inviting us to the table. Around the table with him were his disciples, all of which were incredibly, incredibly broken. And Jesus invited them to the table to show them the work that he had done over a meal. And he said, welcome to the table where I am about to put all things back together. This was a very important meal and a very important table. I want to welcome you to our table for communion offering, but first watch this.